1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bruno Shirley, a co-host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Alison Melnick-Dyer about her new book, The Tibetan Nun, Mingyur Peldron, A Woman of Power and Privilege. Alison, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: It's great that you are here. Um, I was wondering if you'd just begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself. How did you end up working... On Tibetan Buddhism.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, I my my interest in Tibetan Buddhism actually came as a result of a study abroad trip, which I think is pretty common um, among the Buddhist studies crowd. I had been practicing Buddhism for many years when I arrived at college, um, but. Uh, my interests in college initially were were different. I was interested in government and international policy. And then over time, found myself enrolling in more and more courses in the Asian Studies Department, um, went on a study abroad at, um, in Tibet. So at that point, I realized, hey, there are scholars in the world who have managed to figure out how to earn a living spending their time uh, researching and learning about Tibetan Buddhist history. Um, So that was incredibly compelling um, for me. And by the time I returned from the study abroad trip, I was totally hooked.
1: That is a very familiar story. Um (laughs) <laughs> and so from that sort of general aspiration, how did you come to be interested in, in this particular Tibetan Buddhist, um, Mingir Peldron, and, and end up writing a book about her?
0: Yeah, so I first learned about Mingir Peldron when I was in graduate school, and I was actually studying um, her father, uh, who was a treasure revealer named Terdok Lingpa, um, and his brother, the polymath uh, Lochen Dharma Shri, and was very interested in their uh, m- monastic institution called Mindraling Monastery. And my advisor uh, clued me in to the fact that Tardak Lingpa had had a daughter named Migir Peltran, who was um, a scholar and a religious practitioner in her own right. And um, I became really interested in learning more, more about her. Um, and so I focused my dissertation on her, but then even after the dissertation was completed, I was really intrigued by Mingir Peldrin's relationship to power and to privilege. So she was born into some, some really excellent circumstances for someone interested in studying the Dharma, Um, And luckily, her father and uncle were willing to teach her. So um, in her young adulthood, she came up against some severe challenges, including living through a civil war, um, escaping as a refugee, um, challenges to her decision to live a monastic life, um, and challenges to her status based on her gender. And so for me... I found her to be really compelling because of her ability to leverage her privilege in the face of these challenges and, um, to, to use her skills that she had developed as a scholar and as a practitioner and to become a a powerful teacher in, in her community. Um, so I ended up becoming really interested in her hagiography and, um, thought that, the concepts of power and privilege would be really helpful for unpacking her hagiography, um, to try and ultimately understand something about her life.
1: And I, I was really captivated by those, by that sort of framing you have power and privilege, because especially when we talk about privilege, it seems very, very salient, very of today. And I was wondering how, how did you deploy those apparently very contemporary concepts onto this, um, this woman's life. This woman's hagiography. Um, how, how did that all map out?
0: Yeah, so so um, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, and and we have these modern concepts of of power and privilege um, that we use today in modern society. But as I was reading more about her and thinking about her 18th century context, I was recognizing signs of of what we might call privilege today, and it struck me that even though this is a this is a modern concept and we want to avoid um, anachronistic thinking, um, it seemed like it could be helpful for understanding some of the, the complexity in her own life. Um, so for example, um, early on in my research, I was, I was talking to folks and saying, isn't this fascinating that, that she, you know, um, had this education and, and that she had this status. And there was, in some cases, there was sort of a, um, oh, how do I say it? folks sometimes would dismiss her and say, oh well you know she had she had all this privilege. she was born into this this wealthy important family so of course she had access um, but in reality it was more more complex than that and um, you know sometimes in spite of her access to education and and her institutional affiliations, um there there were challenges that that she faced and so I wanted to sort of unpack the the hagiography of of an important woman in such a way that we can better understand some of the the more nuanced challenges that that people face in these different positions um of privilege.
1: Because we you you have mentioned you know this the sort of, maybe tension is too strong a word, but but perhaps some some kind of tension with with gender. I was wondering if you talk a little bit about um, it was really fascinating. you have your references to gender bending in this book. you you pay careful attention to the use of pronouns. Uh, I was just wondering if you might talk a little bit about that angle. I mean, how how do you see this shedding light on on gender, I suppose?
0: Sure. yeah. so um i I was really interested in reading. Mingir Peldrin's Hagiography, um, which was it was written by one of her disciples, um, who whose uh, name was Kyunpa Repa uh, Osel, and uh, Girme Osel was born in 1715. And he became her disciple when he was a child and actually went, went to live with her and study with her as, as a kid and spent most of his life as one of her students and, and one of her attendants. Um, and he writes a hagiography that um, is often elevating I mean your peltron So as a hagiography does, the, the life of a saint is meant to to elevate the saint and and show her her divinity and her um, spiritual realization. Um, but he also uses really interesting language. So in important moments of her life, she becomes the great bliss queen of the Dakinis. Um, she is, is referenced with the, this very florid language that is very gendered as, as um, female, as pointing to her, her femininity and her spiritual attainment. And then at other times, um, he refers to her simply as as the Lama, as the teacher, and 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 in terms and in in ways that are sometimes assumed to be androgynous or assumed to reference men. Um, so I wanted to look at this a little bit more and to see how he's using this, this language. And I, I don't think that, that Guillermo was ever intending to suggest that Minger Peltrin was not a woman or was not, um, a, you know, um, a nun. Um, but he does use this masculine language, um, in moments where he's sort of referencing her casually or referencing her her role as a teacher. And then in moments where he's talking about her attainment, her spiritual attainment, he's using um, language that, that highlights her status as a woman.
1: And when we're talking about status and elevation. This is really the theme of um, your, your chapter two, which is called, I think, Authorizing the Saint. And, and again, when you're talking about authority here, you're engaging with like Weber's ideas of authority who's you know somewhat considered um, perhaps a little dated by some modern scholars but did, but you actually have quite an interesting maybe reimagining of some of Weber's ideas about authority about what's going on in this hagiography. Could you talk us through that
0: sure yes um so so yes indeed Weber is you know he's a bit he's a bit dated uh old fashioned. Um, perhaps outmoded in, in how we think of these things today. Um, and I, I mention him in the book because it was really in reading in reading this old work um, that I started to think about about different modes of authority and how systems of power work in in society. So it was a it was a starting point for me, but um, what was really, interesting to me was to think about how in any given society at any given time, there are multiple social social factors that individuals and groups can draw on, can highlight um, and emphasize that will help them navigate the world from the, the social position that they are in. And so... In looking at Mingir Peldrin's hagiography, and in looking at um, her brother's hagiography, and others of the of a similar time, um, I started to see some patterns, and I wanted to to call attention to those. So, uh, for me, there were there were three modes of authority that stood out as really important. Um, the first is. Uh, the acknowledgement that she was an emanation um, of female Buddhist figures of the past so foremost among these would be Yeshe Sogyel who comes up very frequently um, but there are other other um, female figures who she's identified as as well in fact many um, and and it's almost the the volume, the number of different different, Uh, female Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and uh, semi-historical figures who are identified as previous incarnations of Mingyur Peldrin, it almost becomes... um, not excessive, but it's certainly notable that Girmé is spending so much time talking about these. So this, this emanation authority, this, this status that comes from her role as an incarnate um, of all of these deities and figures, um, was really important in his framing of Minyur Peldrin as Yeshe Tsogiel, and his framing of, of Mingir Peldrin as a realized, highly realized teacher. Um, so that's the, the first of the three. And then the other two are her institutional authority and her educational authority. So when I talk about institutional authority, I'm um, talking about the authority that she gleaned from simply being born into the founding family of Mindreling. Um so thinking about her her status uh, as a member of this of this family, that through sheer proximity to the founders of Mindreling, her life growing up there, and um, her affiliation, she gained some some social standing and status. Um, so that's the the second one. And then the third was educational authority. And that really is um, thinking and talking about her years of training and study with her father and with her uncle and later with her uh, brothers and other scholars. And this is, this actually ends up becoming extremely important because education is, is the center of um, how she, how she rose up in the family. She ended up becoming an educator in her adulthood um, and there. Her, her status as a religious teacher was acknowledged um, within her lifetime. Um, and she ended, you know, ended up serving a really important role for the family as a purveyor of the Mindreling teachings. So, so for me, these three different forms of authority seemed central to the narrative of the Hagiography. They seem to be all part of a larger argument that Girmae is making about Mingir Peldrin as a saint, about Mingir Peldrin as Yeshet Sogil, and about Mingir Peldrin as a significant um, teacher for for the community. This, you know, at, at this point of if, if, pretty much departed from Weber, um, but was really interested in in thinking about how do these types of authority or how do types of authority in general function at any given moment in society because they're never they're never functioning in like isolation from one another. So all three of these things were important to Mingir Peldrin's status. And her life. Um, and none of them were happening separate from from each other, but pulling them apart and looking at them individually can help us understand the, the whole situation a little bit better.
1: It's such a fascinating framework. Um, and, and I imagine it's one that, you know, can be applied to many other similarly authorizing texts or authoritative texts or um, or maybe hagiographic texts and, and that's what brings me we've, we've talked a lot about this hagiography, the life of Menor Peldron, a dispeller of distress for the faithful. Um, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little about the, the text itself and, and maybe even this this genre, what kind of text is it? what sort of relationships are at its core?
0: Sure yeah, absolutely. So uh, this this hagiography, um, as I mentioned earlier, it was written by one of Mingir Peldrin's disciples. And it was actually not completed until 1783, which was about 13, 13 plus years after her death. So this is something that... Uh, Girme Osel reports he was working on for a long time. He talks about discussing it with her, asking her permission to write it. And she, she did give her permission. And, and in some moments in the hagiography, he'll even say, she told me to include this story or she told me to, to write about this. So we know that that she knew that... He was working on the text, um, and we we get the sense that he was working on it for quite some time. Um, with that said, it's it's written, um, you know, it was predominantly written by by him alone. This is not always the case for uh, Tibetan life writing. So when I'm I'm using this term hagiography. It's it's one way to talk about Tibetan life writing um, or namtar, which is a term that doesn't really fit cleanly into English language terminology. So depending on how a namtar was composed and uh, who composed it, it might read like a you know a biography. It might read like a hagiography, like the life of a saint. Um, It might be something somewhere in between. Um, There's a related genre connected to Namtar that we talk about as autobiography. And often these texts were written by multiple authors over a long period of time. Um, perhaps the central figure contributed, um, and in a sense, Migyar Peldrin contributed to this in, in terms of what we hear from Girme Osel saying, oh, she told me to mention this, that, and the other thing. Um, but I, I ended up talking about Namtar as hagiography for this because um, throughout... She's represented as as a saint, as someone who has attained this high status of spiritual realization. Um, she's treated as enlightened, and her process of um, achieving enlightenment or recognition of her of her um, of her state of enlightenment is a is a central focus for Girma Osel. And throughout, um, it it seems to be an argument for for the status. Um, I also should mention that there are many, many namtars of different religious figures um, in the Tibetan literary world. Uh, but a but a surprisingly small percentage of these are written about women. And we've had some some great scholarship on other Namtars and and other um, Tibetan life writing that was written by or about women. But it seemed important to me to look at her life story because uh, we don't have too many examples that have been looked at in in English language scholarship yet.
1: Well, then it's, this book is a very welcome addition to that scholarship. Um, I was, uh, I was very interested in in one of the themes of of your, one of your later chapters where, which presents an angle taken in this hagiography that at first glance sort of took me by surprise. um, Mingir Peldron, the diplomat. And maybe this just speaks more to sort of, you know very contingent modern religious secular dichotomies that that I wouldn't expect to see um, diplomacy in the context of a hagiography of a religious woman why, why do you think it was so important um, why, why is this angle such a, a large theme throughout the hagiography what does this do in particular
0: that's a great a great question so this um, was the result of me trying to figure out how to how to talk about uh, Mingir Peldrin's relationships with political leaders of of the time, um, as well as religious leaders, in particular, her relationship with uh, Polone, uh Sonam Tobgye, who was um, a a political leader during her lifetime, someone who was closely connected to uh, the the Gaeluk denomination as they were in their ascendancy, but also a strong supporter of Mindraling. So um, it's you know it's it's interesting to me that this hagiography was completed in a time in a, in a post civil war era, a time after, um, there had been, a, a civil war in, uh, started in 1717 and went on for, for a couple of years that, um, basically involved some pro Gaelic. um, Military groups going through and uh, demolishing non-Gaeluk religious institutions. There was a lot of of um, strife between Gaeluk and non-Gaeluk religious organizations. Uh, And and during this time, Mingir Peltran's home was destroyed. Uh, Her uncle and her brother were arrested and taken to Lhasa and, uh, and executed. Um, and her, her family home was raised, uh, was, was destroyed and she managed to escape, uh, as did one of her brothers and, um, uh, sister and mother. Uh, they were, they were able to, to escape, um, in, you know, and, and avoid being killed, but it was understandably an extremely uh, difficult time. So this this happened in in Mingyur Peldrin's early adulthood. So we can think about her 20s, her 30s, um, as being a time when the entire community has a collective memory of this destruction and this violence against them, um, as a Nyingma community, as a group that was not part of the, the, uh, central, uh, Gaeluk, uh, religious authority. So, um, thinking about her relationships in her adulthood with, uh, with Luke religious leaders and with political leaders who were aligned with uh, these um, institutions is an interesting way for us to understand how the religious and the political were very intertwined, and and that's not. Uh, a new revelation for anyone I don't think we you know we can see politics and religion and their relationship and in the modern day and um, and sort of understand that this is a a long-standing thing um, but to think about Mingir peldrin's decisions in her adult life um, her decision to um, argue for monasticism over a non-monastic religious life, um, for her to build relationships with um, political and religious leaders outside of the Nigma community, um, really show that, that she was looking to repair the relationships between um, her Ningma community and the other communities around her. Um, there hasn't been a ton of research about the about the Ningma community in the in the mid 18th century. So we know about the non sectarian movements um, later on, um, starting about half a century after this. Um, but there's not not a lot. Of, of information or discussion about what happened in the interim between this civil war and, um, the rise of the, um, of the non-sectarian, um, developments in, in Eastern Tibet. Um, so, so I think it's hopefully helpful for us to, to look at, at her concerns with connecting with, uh, Gay Luke uh, religious leaders and connecting with political representatives of the time in a sort of um, attempt at diplomatic um, overtures.
1: I mean, and speaking very much not as a specialist in Tibet, I, I found this, I did find this very helpful. I hope that our listeners will as well when they do read the book. I just wanted to maybe. Um, to turn to, to some of those bigger questions, perhaps. You've got this lovely line right toward the end that I was really taken by. The historical memory of women, such as Minger Peldron, can shift how we think about women's lives in the present and the future, as well as the past. Um, and I was wondering if you'd like to speak, speak to that a little. What are you hoping that your readers will take away from this book? What is the shift um, that you're hoping we will, we will make here?
0: Yeah, so um, I I think that there's been a lot of of focus and attention on religious women's lives in in recent years, and I mean this has really been happening for decades in in Buddhist studies, but compared to the the collection of scholarship on men and um, men's monasticism, it's still, uh, we still have a a long way to go. And I think part of that is um, that the, the more Buddhist women we learn about, the more nuanced our understanding can become about the lives of of Buddhist women, and um, you know, Mingyur Peltrin was part of the cultural elite. She was very privileged. Um, she had, you know, a, a really unusual set of of um, sort of social social um, status that that added to this privilege that she had. So she's not you know, uh, your average everyday woman. She is, um, very unusual in a lot of respects, but I think it's important for us to, to understand that there were women in positions of power. And, um, if we can understand how they established that authority and how society rejected or accepted that authority, it's going to tell us a lot more about uh, religious society as a whole, about Buddhist communities as a whole. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful that people will understand that, you know, women's lives, there are available options, um, especially when we're thinking about religious study. These have always been complex and nuanced Um for me, privilege is a helpful way for understanding the complexities uh, that that different people have sort of faced in in pursuing a, a religious life. But I'm hoping that we can look beyond that, just to broader historical context and ask questions about um, some of the the varieties of approaches that women had to um to living their lives what kinds of agency they did or did not have and how we can how we can understand these in in some more detail and um yeah just with some more nuance
1: and maybe then you know, speaking of more nuance or or uh, more detail i wanted to sort of wrap up just by asking our traditional last question now that the book's out there in the world what are you working on now
0: Ah, yeah. So um, yeah, the book is out there in the world. Um, I am so now working on a a project that has some similarity and and a lot of difference. Um, I have been Studying and working in the uh, Drigung Kagyu community, so a, a different denomination of Tibetan Buddhism, um, for a long time. And I've been fascinated by this figure of Achi Choki Droma. So, Achi was uh, the, I think, great great grandmother of the founder of the Drigung uh, tradition. And she became the protector deity of the community. And I'm really interested in in learning more about her, her role in the community and how she's invoked uh, as a protector in the modern day. Um, Beyond that, I'm also really interested in learning more about um, the gender dynamics in modern monasticism, specifically looking at the lives of monks and nuns in modern Dregung communities, thinking about how are monks treated? How are nuns treated? How do they relate to one another? How does the lay community connect with monastics? And are there gendered dynamics to those relationships? So it's, right now, sort of a, a couple of, of related projects that I'm, that I'm thinking about. Uh, one is based in the historical and the literary and another is based in the modern contemporary, uh, status of, of monastic people, um, at Trigung.
1: We will all look forward to seeing those projects come to fruition. In the meantime, we've got your amazing book, um, it's available both uh, in physical hard copy, but also through, an, I think, an open access creative commons digital edition. Is that right?
0: Yes, that is right. It is available online, open access, free to anyone. Uh, but you can also purchase a hard copy if you would like to read it the old fashioned way.
1: That really is the best of both worlds. Um. <laughs> Hey Alison, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for joining us and, and talking us through this really wonderful book. Um, I hope that all of our listeners have a chance to enjoy it as I did.
0: Thank you so much for, for having me and, and thanks for for talking with me.